Chapter 5 of The Young Carthaginian. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Crown. The Young Carthaginian. A Story of the Times of Hannibal. By George Alfred Henty. Chapter 5. The Conspiracy Giscon led his companion along the narrow lanes until he reached the back entrance of the house where the meetings were held. Knocking in a particular way, it was opened at once and closed behind them. As they entered, a slave took Malchus's horse without a word and fastened it to a ring in the wall, where four or five other horses were standing. I rather wonder you are not afraid of drawing attention by riding on horseback to a house in such a quarter, Malchus said. We dare not meet secretly, you know. The city is full of spies, and doubtless the movements of all known to be hostile to Hanno and his party are watched. Therefore we thought it best to meet here. We have caused it to be whispered as a secret in the neighborhood that the house has been taken as a place where we can gamble free from the presence of our elders. Therefore, the only comments we excite is, there go those young fools who are ruining themselves. It is only because you are on horseback that I have come round to this gate. Had you come on foot, we should have entered by the front. Fortunately, there are among us many who are deemed to be mere pleasure seekers, men who wager fortunes on their horses, who are given to banquets, or whose lives seem to be passed in luxury and indolence, but who at heart are as earnest in the cause of Carthage as I am. The presence of such men among us gives a probability to the tale that this is a gambling house, where we all of my stamp, men known to be utterly hostile to Hanno and his party, suspicion would fall upon our meetings at once. But here we are. As he spoke, he drew aside some heavy curtains and entered a large room. Some ten or twelve young men were assembled there. They looked up in surprise as Giscon entered, followed by his companion. I have brought a recruit, Giscon said, one whom all of you know by repute, if not personally. It is Malchus, the son of General Hamilcar. He is young to be engaged in a business like ours, but I have been with him in a campaign and can answer for him. He is brave, ready, thoughtful, and trustworthy. He loves his country and hates her tyrants. I can guarantee that he will do nothing imprudent, but can be trusted as one of ourselves. Being young, he will have the advantage of being less likely to be watched, and may be doubly useful. He is ready to take the oath of our society. As Giscon was the leading spirit of the band, his recommendation was taken as amply sufficient. The young men rose and formed in a circle round Malchus. All drew their daggers, and one whom Malchus recognized with a momentary feeling of surprise as Cartholon, whom Adderbal had pointed out at the Barsine Club as one who thought only of horse racing, said, Do you swear by Moloch and Astarte to be true to the society, to devote yourself to the destruction of the oppressors of Carthage, to carry out all measures which may be determined upon, even at the certain risk of your life, and to suffer yourself to be torn to pieces by the torture rather than reveal aught that passes within these walls. That I swear solemnly, Malchus said. 
I need not say, Cartholon said carelessly, that the punishment of the violation of the oath is death. It is so put in our rules. But we are all nobles of Carthage, and nobles do not break their oaths, so we can let that pass. When a man's word is good enough to make him beggar himself in order to discharge a wager, he can be trusted to keep his word in a matter which concerns the lives of a score of his fellows. And now that this business is arranged, we can go on with our talk. But first let us have some wine, for all this talking is thirsty work at best. The young men threw themselves upon the couches around the room, and, while slaves brought round wine, chatted lightly with each other about horses, play presented the day before, the respective merits of the reigning beauties of Carthage, and other similar topics, and Malchus, who was impressed with the serious nature of the secret conspiracy which he had just sworn to aid, could not help being surprised at the careless gaiety of the young men, although engaged in a conspiracy in which they risked their lives. It was not until some minutes after the slaves had left the apartment that the light talk and banter ceased, as Giscon rose and said, Now to business. Alcus has told me that an old fisherman, who took a lead in stirring up his fellows to declare for Hannibal, has been decoyed away from his home and murdered. His body has been found floating in the lake, strangled. This is the nineteenth in the course of a week. These acts are spreading terror among the working classes, and unless they are put a stop to, we can no longer expect assistance from them. That these deeds are the work of the officials of the tribunals, we have no doubt. The sooner we strike, the better. Matters are getting ripe. I have eight men sworn into my section among the weavers, and need but two more to complete it. We will instruct our latest recruit to raise a section among the fishermen. The sons of the man just murdered should form a nucleus. We agreed from the first that three hundred resolute men beside ourselves were required, and that each of us should raise a section of ten. Malchus brings up our number here to thirty, and when all the sections are filled up, we shall be ready for action. Failure ought to be impossible. The houses of Hanno and thirty of his party will be attacked, and the tyrants slain before any alarm can be given. Another thirty at least should be slain before the town is fairly aroused. Maybe each section can undertake three, if our plans are well laid, and each chooses for attack three living near each other. We have not yet settled whether it will be better to separate when this is done, content with the first blow against our tyrants, or to prepare beforehand for a popular rising, to place ourselves at the head of the populace, and to make a clean sweep of the judges and the leaders of Hanno's party. Giscon spoke in an ordinary matter-of-fact tone, as if he were discussing the arrangements of a party of pleasure. But Malchus could scarcely repress a movement of anxiety, as he heard this proposal for the wholesale destruction of the leading men of Carthage. The council thus opened was continued for three hours. Most of those present spoke, but to the surprise of Malchus, there was an entire absence of that gloom and mystery with which the idea of a state conspiracy was associated in his mind. The young men discussed it earnestly indeed, but in the same spirit in which they would have agreed over a disputed question as to the respective merits of two horses. They laughed, joked, offered and accepted wagers, and took the whole matter with a lightness of heart which Malchus imitated to the best of his power, but which he was very far from feeling. And yet he felt that beneath all this levity 
his companions were perfectly in earnest in their plans but they joked now as they would have joked before the commencement of a battle in which the odds against them were overwhelming and great even guiscon generally grave and gloomy was as light-hearted as the rest the aristocracy of carthage were like the aristocracy of all other countries from tradition training and habit brave to excess just as centuries later the noblesse of france chatted gaily on the tumbrel on their way to execution and offered each other their snuff-boxes on the scaffold so these young aristocrats of carthage smiled and jested though well aware that they were risking their lives no decision was arrived at for this could only be decided upon at a special meeting at which all the members of the society would be present among those now in council opinions were nearly equally divided the one party urged that did they take steps to prepare the populace for a rising a rumor would be sure to meet the ears of their opponents and they would be on their guard whereas if they scattered quickly after each section had slain two of their tyrants the operation might be repeated until all the influential men of hanno's faction had been removed in reply to these arguments the other party urged that delays were always dangerous that huge rewards would be offered after the first attempts that some of the men of the sections might turn traitors that Heno's party would be on their guard in future, and that the judges would effect wholesale arrests and executions. Whereas, were the populace appealed to in the midst of the excitement which would be caused by the death of Hanno and his principal adherents, the people would rise and finish with their tyrants. After all who wished to speak on the subject had given their opinions, they proceeded to details. Each gave a statement of the number of men enrolled in his section with a few words as to the disposition of each almost without an exception each of these men was animated with a sense of private wrong some had lost near relatives executed for some trifling offence by the tribunals some had been ruined by the extortion of the tax-gatherers all were stated to be ready to give their lives for vengeance these agents of ours, you see, Malchus, are not for the most part animated by any feeling of pure patriotism. It is their own wrongs and not the injuries of Carthage which they would avenge. But we must take them as we find them. One cannot expect any deep feeling of patriotism on the part of the masses, who, it must be owned, have no very great reason to feel any lively interest in the glories of the Republic. So that they eat and drink sufficiently and can earn their living, it matters not very greatly to them whether Carthage is great and glorious or humbled and defeated. But this will not always be so. When we have succeeded in ridding Carthage of her tyrants, we must next do all we can so to raise the condition of the common people that they may feel that they too have a common interest in the fate of our country. I should not, of course, propose giving to them a vote. To bestow the suffrage upon the ignorant, who would simply follow the demagogues who would use them as tools, would be the height of madness. The affairs of state, the government of the country, the making of the laws, must be solely in the hands of those fitted for the task. Of the men who, by education, by birth, by position, by study, and by leisure, have prepared their minds for such a charge. But the people should share in the advantages of a good government. They should not be taxed more than they could reasonably pay, and any tax-gatherers who should extort a penny beyond the legal amount should be disgraced and punished. 
The courts should be open to all. The judges should be impartial and incorruptible. Every man should have his rights and his privileges. Then each man, feeling an interest in the stability of the state, would be ready to bear arms in his defense. And Carthage, instead of being dependent entirely upon her tributaries and mercenaries, would be able to place a great army in the field by her own unaided exertions. The barbarian tribes would cease to revolt, knowing that success would be hopeless. And as we should be strong at home, we should be respected abroad, and might view without apprehension the rising power of Rome. There is plenty of room for both of us, for us, Africa, and Spain, for her, all the rest of Europe, and as much of Asia as she cares to take. We could look without jealousy at each other's greatness, each secure in his own strength and power. Yes, there may be a grand future before Carthage yet. The meeting now broke up. Where are you going, Malchus? Giscon asked the lad as they went out into the courtyard. To see the sacrifices? You know there is a grand function today to propitiate Moloch and to pray for victory for our arms. No, Malchus said with a shudder. I don't think I am a coward, Giscon, but these terrible rites frighten me. I was taken once by my father, and I then swore that never again, unless it be absolutely necessary for me in the performance of public office, will I be present at such a scene. For weeks afterwards I scarcely slept. Day and night there was before me that terrible brazen image of Moloch. If I fell off to sleep, I woke bathed in perspiration as I heard the screams of the infants as they were dropped into those huge hands, heated to redness, stretched out to receive them. I cannot believe, Giscon, that the gods are so cruel. Then there was the slaughter of a score of captives taken in war. I see them now, standing pale and stern, with their eyes directed to the brazen image which was soon to be sprinkled with their blood while the priests in their scarlet robes, with the sacrificial knives in hand, approached them. I saw no more, for I shut my eyes till all was over. I tell you again, Giscon, I do not believe the gods are so cruel. Why should the gods of Phoenicia and Carthage alone demand blood? Those of Greece and Rome are not so bloodthirsty. And yet Mars gives as many victories to the Roman arms as Moloch does to ours. Blaspheme not the gods, Malchus, Giscon said gloomily. You may be sure that the wreath of a conquering general will never be placed around your brow if you honor them not. If honoring them means approval of shedding the blood of infants and captives, I will renounce all hopes of obtaining victory by their aid. I would you had spoken so before, Malchus. Had I known that you were a scorner of the gods, I would not have asked you to join in our enterprise. No good fortune can be expected to attend our efforts, unless we have the help of the gods. The matter is easily mended, Giscon, Malchus said calmly. So far I have taken no step towards carrying out your plans, and have but listened to what you said. Therefore no harm can yet have been done. Strike my name off the list, and forget that I have been with you. You have my oath that I will say naught of anything that I have heard. You can well make some excuse to your comrades. Tell them, for example, that though I fear not for myself, I thought that, being the son of Hamilcar, I had no right to involve his name and family in such an enterprise, unless by his orders. Yes, it were better so, Giscon said after a pause. 
I dare not continue the enterprise with one who condemns the gods among us. It would be to court failure. I did not dream of this. Who could have thought that a lad of your age would have been a spurner of the gods? I am neither a condemner nor a spurner, Malchus said indignantly. I say only that I believe you worship them wrongfully, that you do them injustice. I say it is impossible that the gods who rule the world can have pleasure in the screams of dying infants or the groans of slaughtered men. Giscon placed his hand to his ears, as if to shut out such blasphemy, and hurried away, while Malchus, mounting his horse, rode out slowly and thoughtfully to his father's villa. He was not at heart sorry that he was freed from this association, into which, without knowing the measures by which it intended to carry out its aims, he had rashly entered. He was ready for armed insurrection against the tyrants of Carthage, but he revolted from the thought of this plan for a midnight massacre. It was not by such means that he would have achieved the regeneration of his country. He felt, too, that the reason which he had given Giscon was a valid one. He had no right, at his age, to involve his family in such a conspiracy. Did it fail, and were he found to be among the conspirators, Hanno and his associates would be sure to seize the fact as a pretext for assailing Hamilcar. They would say that Malchus would never have joined in such a plot, had he not known that it had the approval of his father, and that he was, in fact, but the representative of his family in the design for overthrowing the constitution of the Republic. Fortunately for Malchus, a few days later orders were given for the instant embarkation of a portion of the reinforcements destined for Hannibal. Hamilcar was to proceed in command of them, and, busied with his preparation for the start, Malchus thought little more of the conspiracy which was brewing. Thirty large merchant ships were hired to convey the troops, who numbered six thousand. These were principally Libyan footmen. The main body, with the Numidian horse, were to follow shortly. At last the day for embarkation arrived, and the troops defiled through the Temple of Moloch, where sacrifices were offered up for the success of the enterprise. Malchus, under the pretense that something was not ready, at the last moment lingered at home, and only joined his comrades, a hundred young men of the Carthaginian horse, on the caves. This body, all composed of young men of the best families of Carthage, were to sail in the same ship which carried Hamilcar. The scene was a busy one. The docks of Carthage were extensive, and the ships which were to convey the expedition lay in deep water by the caves, so that the troops could march on board. A great crowd of the populace had assembled to view the embarkation. These were, with difficulty, kept from crowding the troops and impeding their movement by a cordon of soldiers. As the troops marched on to the quay, they were formed up in parties by the side of the ships which were to convey them. Very different was the demeanor of the men of the different nationalities. The Libyans were stern and silent. They were part of the contingent which their state was bound to furnish to Carthage, and when unwillingly, cursing in their hearts the power which tore them from their homes, to fight in a war in which they had neither concern nor interest. Near them were a body of Garamantes, wrapped in the long burnous, which then as now was the garb of the children of the desert. Tall, swarthy figures these, lissom and agile, with every muscle standing out clear through the brown skin. Strange as must have been the scene to them, there was no wonder expressed in the keen glances which they shot around them 
from underneath their dark eyebrows. Silent and taciturn, scarce a word was to be heard among them as they stood awaiting the orders to embark. They were there unwillingly, and their hearts were far away in the distant desert, but none the less would they be willing to fight when the time came. Terrible foes these would be in a night attack, with their stealthy, tiger-like tread, their gleaming, vengeful eyes, and their cruel mouths. Very different were the band of Ethiopians from the distant Sudan, with their cloaks of lion skin and the gaudy feathers fastened in a fillet around their heads. Their black faces were alive with merriment and wonder. Everything was new and extraordinary to them. The sea, the ships, the mighty city, the gathered crowd, all excited their astonishment, and their white teeth glistened as they chatted incessantly with a very babel of laughter and noise. Not less light-hearted were the chosen band of young nobles grouped by the general's ship. Their horses were held in ranks behind them for the last time by their slaves, for in future they would have to attend to them themselves. And as they gathered in groups, they laughed and jested over the last scandal in Carthage, the play which had been produced the night before at the theater, or the horse race which was to be run on the following day. As to the desperate work on which they were to be engaged, for it was whispered that Hannibal had in preparation some mighty enterprise, it troubled them not at all, nor the thought that many of them might never look on Carthage again. In their hearts, perhaps, some of them, like Malchus, were thinking sadly of the partings they had just gone through with those they loved. But no signs of such thoughts were apparent in their faces or conversation. Presently a blast of trumpets sounded, and the babel of voices was hushed as if by magic. The soldiers fell into military order and stood motionless. Then Hamilcar walked along the caves, inspecting carefully each group, asking questions of the captains of the ships as to their store of provisions and water, receiving from the officers charged with that duty the lists of the war machines and stores which were stored away in the hulls. And having assured himself that everything was in order, he gave the signal to his trumpeter, who again blew a long and piercing blast. The work of embarkation at once commenced. The infantry were soon on board, but the operation of shipping the horses of the cavalry took longer. Half of these were stored away in the hold of the general's ship, the rest in another vessel. When the troops were all on board, the soldiers who had kept back the crowd were withdrawn, and the Carthaginians thronged down onto the quay. A small space was still kept clear on the wharf, by whose side the admiral's ship was lying, and here was gathered a throng of the aristocracy of the city, to see the last of their sons and relatives of the guard. Having seen their horses safely stowed below, the young men crowded to the side of the ship to exchange adieus with their friends. The parting was a brief one, for the wind was fair, and the general anxious to be well out of the bay before nightfall. Therefore the signal was hoisted. Numbers of slaves seized the hawsers of the ships and towed them along through the narrow passage which connected the docks with the sea. A shout of adieu rose from the crowd. The sails were hoisted, and the fleet proceeded on its way. The arrangements for the comfort of the troops at sea were simple and primitive. Each man shifted for himself. The whole space below was occupied by cargo or horses. The troops lived and slept on deck. Here, on wide flat stones, they cooked their meals, whiled away the day by games of chance, 
and slept at night on skins or thick rugs. Fortunately, the weather was fair. It was early in March, but the nights were not cold. The fleet hugged the coast, anchoring at night, until the northern shores stood out clear and well-defined as Spain stretched down towards Africa. Then they crossed and cruised along until they arrived at Cartagena. Short as was the time which had elapsed since the foundation of that city, its aspect was already imposing and extensive. It lay at the head of a gulf facing south, about a mile in depth and nearly double that width. Across the mouth of this bay was an island, with but a narrow passage on each side, protecting it from the southern winds and forming with it a magnificent harbor. On a bold hill at the head of the harbor stood the town. This hill rose from a wide lagoon, which communicated on one side with the sea, and was on the other separated from it only by a strip of land, four hundred yards wide. Through this a wide channel had been dug. Thus the hill, which was of considerable extent, rugged and precipitous, was isolated, and could only be attacked by sea. The town was built in a sort of amphitheater facing the sea, and was surrounded by a strong fortification two miles and a half in circumference, so that even should an assailant cross the lagoon, which in summer was nearly dry, he would have before him an almost impregnable defense to carry. Here, in buildings whose magnitude surprised the newcomers, acquainted as they were with the buildings of Carthage, were stored the treasures, the baggage, the ammunition of war, and the provisions of the army. It had been the aim of the great Hamilcar, and of Hasdrubal after him, to render the army of Spain as far as possible independent of the mother country. They well knew how often the treasury of Carthage was empty, owing to the extravagance and dishonesty of her rulers, and how impossible it would be to obtain thence the supplies required for the army. Therefore they established immense workshops, where arms, munitions of war, machines for sieges, and everything required for the use of the army were fabricated. Vast as were the expenses of these establishments, the revenues of Iberia were amply sufficient not only to defray all the cost of occupation, but to transmit large sums to Carthage. These revenues were derived partly from the tribute paid by conquered tribes, partly from the spoils taken in captured cities, but most of all from the mines of gold and silver which were at that time immensely rich, and were worked by the labor of slaves taken in war or of whole tribes subdued. Some idea of the richness of these mines may be formed by the fact that one mine, which Hannibal had inherited from his father, brought into him a revenue of nearly a thousand pounds a day, and this was but one of his various sources of wealth. This was the reason that Hamilcar, Hasdrubal, and Hannibal were able to maintain themselves in spite of the intrigues of their enemies in the capital. Their armies were their own rather than those of the country. It was to them that the soldiers looked for their pay, as well as for promotion and rewards for valor, and they were able, therefore, to carry out the plans which their genius suggested, untrammeled by orders from Carthage. They occupied, indeed, a position very similar to that of Wallenstein, when, with an army raised and paid from his private means, he defended the cause of the empire against Gustavus Adolphus and the princes of the Protestant League. It is true that the Carthaginian generals had always by their side two commissioners of the Senate, 
the Republic of Carthage, like the First Republic of France, was ever jealous of her generals, and appointed commissioners to accompany them on their campaigns, to advise and control their movements, and to report on their conduct. And many of the defeats of the Carthaginians were due in no small degree to their generals being hampered by the interference of the commissioners. They were present, as a matter of course, with the army of Hannibal, but his power was so great that their influence over his proceedings was but nominal. The war which was about to break out with Rome is called the Second Punic War, but it should rather be named the War of Hannibal with Rome. He conceived and carried it out from his own resources, without interference, and almost without any assistance from Carthage. Throughout the war her ships lay idle in her harbor. Even in his greatest need, Carthage never armed a galley for his assistance. The pay of the army came solely from his coffers. The material for the war from the arsenals constructed by his father, his brother-in-law, and himself. It was a war waged by a single man against a mighty power. And as such there is, with the exception of the case of Wallenstein, nothing to resemble it in the history of the world. Passing through the narrow passage into the harbor, the fleet sailed up to the end of the bay, and were soon alongside the spacious caves which had been erected. A large quantity of shipping already lay there, for the trade of Cartagena with the mother city, and with the ports of Spain, Africa, and the east already rivaled that of Carthage. A group of officers were gathered on the quay as Hamilcar's ship, which was leading the fleet, neared it, and Hamilcar exclaimed, There is Hannibal himself! As the ship moored alongside the quay, Hannibal came on board and warmly embraced his cousin, and then bestowed a cordial greeting upon Malchus. Why, cousin Malchus, he said, though it is but a year since I was in Carthage, I should scarce have known you, so much have you grown. I see you have entered the cavalry, that is well. You cannot begin too early to accustom yourself to war. Then, turning, he went among the young men of the guard to all of whom he was personally known, greeting them with a cordiality and kindness which greatly gratified them. Malchus gazed at him with admiration. Fortunately, an accurate description of Hannibal has come down to us. He was one who, even at first sight, won all hearts by his lofty and noble expression, by the kindness and sincerity which his face expressed. The Carthaginians, as a race, were short, but Hannibal was very tall, and his great width of shoulders testified to his immense strength. The beauty of the Carthaginian race was proverbial, but even among them he was remarkable. His head was well placed on his shoulders. His carriage was upright and commanding, his forehead lofty. His eye, though soft and gentle at ordinary times, was said to be terrible in time of battle. His head was bare. His hair of a golden brown was worn long and encircled by a golden band. His nose was long and straight, forming with the forehead a perfect profile. The expression of the mouth was kind but firm. His beard was short. The whole contour of the face was noble in the extreme. In battle he wore a helmet of bronze closely fitting the head, behind which projected a curved metal plate covering his neck. A band of gold surrounded the helmet. In front were five laurel leaves in steel. At the temples, two leaves of the lotus of the same metal. On the crest, rising from an ornament enriched with pearls, 
was a large plume of feathers, sometimes red and sometimes white. A tuft of white horsehair fell from the plate behind. Coat of mail, made of a triple tissue of chains of gold, covered his body. Above this he wore a shirt of the finest white linen, covered to the waist by a jerkin of leather overlaid with gold plates. A large mantle of purple embroidered with gold hung from his shoulders. He wore sandals and leggings of red Morocco leather. But it was only on special occasions that Hannibal was thus magnificently clad. On the march he dressed generally in a simple blouse like that worn by his soldiers. His arms were borne behind him by an esquire. These consisted of his shield of Galatian manufacture. Its material was bronze, its shape circular. In the center was a conical, sharply pointed boss. The face of the shield was ornamented with subjects taken from the history of Carthage in relief. The offensive arms were a sword, a lance, and a bow with arrows. But it was not to the splendor of his appearance that Hannibal owed the enthusiasm by which he was regarded by his troops. His strength and skill were far superior to those of any man in his army. His food was as simple as that of his soldiers. He was capable of going for days without eating, and it was seldom that he broke his fast until the day's work was over. When he ate, it would be sitting on horseback, or as he walked about seeing to the needs of the soldiers. At night he slept among them, lying on a lion's skin without covering. He was indifferent to heat and cold and in the heaviest tempest of wind and rain would ride bareheaded among his troops, apparently unconscious of the tempest against which he was struggling. So far as was known, he was without a vice. He seldom touched wine. His morals were irreproachable. He never gave way to anger. His patience under trials and difficulties of all sorts was illimitable. In the midst of the greatest trials and dangers, he preserved his cheerfulness, and had ever an encouraging word for his soldiers. Various as were the nationalities of the troops who followed him, constrained as most of them had been to enter the service of Carthage, so great was their love and admiration for their commander that they were ready to suffer all hardships, to dare all dangers, for his sake. It was his personal influence, and that alone, which welded this army, composed of men of various nationalities and tribes, into one whole, and enabled it to perform the greatest military exploits in the world's history, and for years to sustain a terrible struggle against the whole power of Rome. End of chapter 5